the sins of again, the fathers. Uh, for, for those of you who November are, uh, we're just kind of walking in. We're gonna we're gonna address uh, the changes to uh, Handbook One in just a moment here. We're, we're gonna do it as part of this because I think this is a fairly significant uh, event in in the church that just happened here. Okay, so let's, uh, and, I, and, and talking about volcanoes, I thought then it would be a good thing to start talking about mist and vapor. First <laughs> uh, Nephi 12. Now, we've been talking about the fact that, uh, remember that Father Lehi has his dream of the tree of life. And for the most part, what is, what is Father Lehi worried about just as he's having his vision of the tree of life? His family. And so as it turns out, 1 Nephi 8 is really mostly about his family. What will happen to Laman and Lemuel? Then as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, now Nephi is going to say, I want to see and hear and know the things that my father saw. And the angel is going to walk him through and say... What, what desirest thou? Well, I want to see the things. Do you believe? Yes. Look. Look, 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 look. And so ne- Nephi is about to get this vision. And by the way, by, I'm going to confirm again who I believe the angel was. It's just my belief who the angel was giving Nephi this tour of all of this. Okay. Um, but Nephi is going to get a much more expansive view of the entire thing. Uh, he's going to watch as he's looking into the future. Uh, he sees many generations pass away of his, peop- of his people. And it came to pass that I saw a mist of darkness on the face of the land of promise. I saw lightnings and thunderings and earthquakes and all manner of tumultuous noises, earth and rocks, and they rent. And I saw mountains tumbling into pieces and the plains, and they were broken up. You just get this sense. Does that feel a bit like an earth, like a volcano? Uh, the one on Santorini, they know that a tsunami came across all the way to the island of Crete, hundreds of miles over there, and took out another civilization over there in the island of Crete. The, and, and comes with that, the mist and the darkness, and one that big is going to affect the weather for a long time. And so you see this, many cities, they were sunk and they were burned with fire. And I saw many that tumbled to the earth because of the quaking thereof, and it came to pass that I saw these things that I saw a vapor of darkness. Now, so we're getting this vision of the world, but the angel is using what part of the tree of life vision to set this up? Mists of darkness, right? So isn't it nice how the, the angel's going to say, symbolically, this same vision which worked so well for your dad telling him about his family, we're going to use the same vision to show you what's going to happen to your people in the future. Symbols are like that. The same symbol, depending on who's looking at it and what time of life they're looking at it, you'll see a whole uh, a lot of things in there. Okay, And then he's going to... So along with that, he's going to see the heavens open, the Lamb of God descending, he came down and showed himself... Uh, He's going to see the uh, twelve ministers that shall judge thy seed. Their garments will be made white in his blood. He's going to see that it will go four generations, pass away in righteousness, and then they're going to fight. Okay? 
Now, let me stop for a sec. All the way through this, Nephi has the same hope that his dad does, right? Which is, he's really hoping for the welfare of Laman and Lemuel. And their children down the road. Okay? Now, what he's looking, as he looks at this vision, what does he now know about what's going to happen in the future? It's not going to be pretty. He's going to see the effect it's going to have on his kids. And their kids. And their kids. How many millions will die because of the lies of Laman and Lemuel? Okay. Now, that said, then, I want, I want you to look, look at this verse. He's going to give us now an explanation. The myths of darkness, what are they? Well, they are the temptations of the devil, which blindeth the eyes and hardeneth the hearts of the children of men, and lead them, leadeth them away into broad roads. What does he mean by broad roads? We've got two roads, a straight road and a broad road. I'm just going to say the opposite of the straight and narrow path. Yeah, and, and these myths are going to lead them in broad road. Why a broad road? For not, there, there may be, there's going to be a lot of people on the broad road. Yeah, that's nice. There are a lot of choices on broad roads. Because it's not a straight road. But isn't a straight road kind of a restricted road? Wouldn't a broad road seem like it'd be safer? Except for the fact that what happens on the broad road? Or leadeth them away into broad roads that they perish and... How do you get lost on a broad road? Doesn't it seem like, you know... Aren't we always saying, well, we gotta, we got to redo the freeway. There's only two lanes. We want it to be like eight roads. And if it's broader, we have less of a chance of getting lost. What's the problem, what's the problem with a broad road? Unless you don't see the signs. Yeah, unless you don't see the signs. That's right. Yeah. There begin to be a lot of different options. Right. And how, how do you know which one of those options are the right one? Right? Yeah. What's that? No, they are, but but they're broad. So it doesn't it look doesn't it look safer to be on a broad road than on a narrow road? Especially if there's cliffs. Well, there could be cliffs. There could be right. Yeah. Remember, remember Alice in Wonderland. You know, where are you going? I don't know. Then any road you choose will be just fine. Oh, yes. Broad, okay, so broad-minded means what? Yeah, and, and, and it means that we, not, and we, will, we don't judge. We accept everything. Okay, yeah. I think that the idea of getting lost in the crowd, because, I mean, based on the narrow road, it's very individualized and personal. And the broad road, Well, you can actually kind of, on a broad road, you can kind of go with the crowd, right? And you lose your individuality, you lose your personality.
But isn't it safer? Because the crowd is always is all going this way. Yeah, Thank you for that. Well, it would seem who you're trusting. On the broad road, you're trusting other people. Right. And on a narrow road, you'd be trusting God. Ah, okay. So we went to Six Flags on Saturday with our family, which is an hour driving on the way home. Yeah. And this one exit and was sent a completely different way home by my GPS. <laughs> completely different. And, it, and you wouldn't think that one exit would make such a difference. Yeah. Because, because once you leave the straight road, then, then all options are... Sure. At the end, you're way off. Yeah. That's okay. I love the conference talk about simplifying. Yes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes simplifying means stick with the stick with the straight road. Why make this more complicated? Being broad, being broad-minded, like being light-minded, without taking things seriously. Ah, so sometimes broad road is, can be like light-minded. We're just not seriously following here. Okay, so so tell me so now now let's come back around to the changes to handbook one. Is the church being broad minded or is it being straight and narrowed? It is straight and narrow. And how is that being portrayed? Evil. Right. Well, what's the? How many? If you take the actual amount of kids that are going to be living, but for, for those of you who everybody know what we're talking about, everybody don't know. Okay, the the changes to Handbook One says that kids that are born into uh, uh, same sex marriages aren't going to be uh, baptized or blessed. Uh, Yeah, right. Uh, until they turn 18 and they move out of that situation and then they're going to have to avow uh, same-sex marriage. Okay? Disavow. Disavow. Avow? <laughs> that would be an important change, wouldn't it? <laughs> they're going to have to disavow. Right. Which is that now being portrayed. So, so let's, take, let's step back for that for just a second. So what is it that the church is saying about those that are... Um, publicly being married in a same-sex union. That becomes an apostasy. Now, they've struggled with, with homosexuality and gay behavior forever. What's the difference between being married? Acting it and publicly acknowledging it and making no effort to, to try and change that. Okay, so, so number one that changes, we're now saying that this is uh, apostasy and... Uh, talking with our state president yesterday requires disciplinary counsel. Now, uh, don't know, it doesn't say what the effect of the disciplinary counsel will be because that's not dictated. That is to left to the judges in Israel. But it will still require mandatorily a disciplinary counsel. Oh, I was just thinking they're actively defying the laws of God. They are actively. So it's, it's a much more public kind of thing. That's what's making it one step more to say, okay, this is kind of apostate behavior. Yeah. Which is, which is really interesting because on the other side, we believe in honoring, sustaining, and obeying the laws of the land. Yes. We do, we do recognize that these marriages are legal now. Yeah. Right? And that is 
Right. And and publicly proclaimed. Yeah. Okay, so now let's now let's talk about the sins of the fathers. That's exactly where I wanted to go. Because if we're actually talking about how many kids uh, where you're going to have a, a couple in a same-sex marriage is going to say, we want our kids to go over here and get baptized into the church, be blessed and baptized in the church. How many, how many kids are we really talking about? Very small. But it's the it's it's now the it's the the image that and how it's being portrayed that is affecting broadly across the board. Yeah, here in the well, and then when you think about these children, if they're going to church and they're being taught values that are totally different than the ones they're living. Right. What kind of and then they go home and they get yeah. yeah. So you've got these kids that are kind of being torn. They they are being torn, and we're trying to avoid that. Yeah. some real faces on it. This is going to be difficult. Yeah. Right. And 
But there were times in his life when that was still difficult that he wanted to be able to do it, but for whatever reason couldn't. Yes. Yeah. And my daughter sent me about three articles. One of them was in LDS Daily. Uh-huh. And, and the title was that this person is a daughter of lesbian. Right. And she, and she actually wrote how, how grateful she is for this decision, which was very uh, surprising. Uh, and there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff out there. There really is. Yeah, Kim. Um, well, I'm struggling with this so badly. I'm really struggling because it doesn't matter how small those numbers are. There are a lot of mixed marriages, and there are a lot of children who are affected today and now. Yes. Who, who, if they're living with mom and mom, and they say, well, I can't get baptized even though I go to church with dad, then, but if I go live with dad, now I can get baptized. I think, I think what's going to happen, too, when you're going to get into some custody battles, the, the legalities to this are going to be, going to be big. Okay, now, now remember over and over, what we're hearing is, and this, this is where this, this comes to, people are saying, how come the kids are being punished for the sins of the fathers? Now, tell me, tell me when kids haven't been affected by the sins of the fathers. Tell me that what, what family isn't affected by the things that their parents do. It's a natural law that says kids are affected by the, the adults that have raised them. And this, and this is going to be a really painful one. Yeah. Yeah. They, and, and they are affected. You know, again, when I, when I deal on an ongoing basis with uh, children of alcoholics, again, we can track here was an alcoholic and I can tell you what the next generation will be like and the next generation and the next generation. Those issues are very well cleared out. That the sins of the fathers do trickle down. And if we thought that's where it ended, that would be in incredibly unfair except for the atonement and the changes that can be made. Well, I think people are thinking this as a punishment, but have you ever thought that it might be for their own good? That mm -hmm. Well, there's the, uh, there's the pushback that, that says, again, we're trying to actually... Protect that family and the battles that may go in there while they're getting two different uh, sets of beliefs. Yeah. Me? Yeah, yes, ma'am. Me. Well, at the end of the day, we have to know that the prophethood is everyone. Yes. If we, if we're going to be, you know, follow the prophet, then we have to accept it. And knowing that those things will be understood at some point. This is Okay, so let me. So here, so let's come back to this idea. Here's the idea that leadeth them away into broad roads. Here's one of the, uh, the blog posts that I saw. Recent blog that I saw yesterday. This is the message that the, this lady's writing out to anybody who's struggling with. Uh, I testify that there are as many plans of salvation as there are children of God. I testify you have heavenly parents who love you and adore you just the way you are. Okay? How would you respond to that one? Yeah. What's wrong, what's wrong with it? 
Right. We, we're not supposed to be as we are. We're natural men right now. And we're going to be changed into to be something like Him. Okay. Are there as many plans of salvation as there are children of God? No. But isn't that the broad road? The broad road is... This is the broad tent. In other words, we're not going. We're going to accept everybody the way they are, and and this is where the world is at the moment. Is saying anything you do is okay, and if you don't think that I'm okay, then that's hate speech. If you're going to call any of my behaviors or things that I'm doing wrong, that's you're you're hating me. You're pushing back. You don't love me. If you love me, you'll let me do whatever I want. Which doesn't make any sense to any mom or dad in here that has ever tried to raise any kids that says no matter what, no matter what you do, no matter what time you go to bed is okay with me. Does that make sense? One question that bothers me is the fact that what are they going to do with children that have been baptized and received the priesthood and are still under age when living in a home? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to say that one a little louder? You're going to start to see a lot of variance on this about each individual case is going to be after taking it. See, in my, in my case where I look at parents that are divorcing and now we get into custody battles, the possibility of here of saying, if mom ends up being... Uh, getting custody of me and she and she's now married in this part I'm not going to get to join the church versus if dad gets custody of me I, I can this is going to come up as a legal thing and I, I'm sure the church has walked their way through it Cindy and see I think it's important to, to always keep in mind that this is a policy and that it's not and, and handbook one says it is a policy that's in his first line Others just want 
to have that option for their children to have. L let me just suggest. Let me just suggest one other thing. In a church where we know just how important blessings and baptisms and raising children is to us, can you begin to imagine the the uh, what the what the brethren, the first presidency, the quorum of the twelve went through to say, we're now going to put together a policy that for a period of time in, in a child's life may exclude them from being able to be baptized and receive blessings. I can't imagine the pain to just even write those words, to dictate those words must have been. Must have been incredibly painful. Knowing that there was going to cause pain in people, people were going to misunderstand this, they were going to mischaracterize it. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the lawsuits that have been causing. Yeah. And probably the breaking up of families and, and younger underage children that are being kicked out of homes right. because of their desire. And so the church's responsibility is to key maintain the the, the family and this and we're having to maintain their family by by with by pulling this away. That's hard. Yeah. I think that uh, children in this situation are not completely free of Sure. On their free agency. So if they make covenants, which is what a lot of these ordinances are, right. they're not entirely free to, to live up to those covenants. Well, and they're going to be influenced by a lot of other things coming into their life. I think that's why the church is saying, we're going to wait till 18 where you're at an age of consent and you can make this decision of, on your own. Yeah. What is that? You don't hear the other talk about the people in the situation to be very angry. Right, because the child's name is on the records, and so we're going to send home teachers and visiting teachers and primary presidents, and every and we're going to have them come into uh, Sunday school classes and things where they're going to be taught that their parents are wrong, that their parents are apostate. That's they they might. Yeah, he's stirring, stirring this up. I think what the, hopefully the LGBT community now is really going to be watching for is, okay, when you say that they're welcome to church, prove it. Yeah. Show us. Are you, there's, they're in denial that it can actually happen. So that actually, that has to do with all of us and how we treat. That, so, so what, so, okay, so this is where this evolves to, I think. That's a good place to take it, Elaine. And that is, how we are going to respond, are we... An increase of love if we run into uh, kids that are in these situations. Or to me, the bigger group that I think is affected by this, more than this small amount of kids that this is going to affect, it's going to be those who have very tender feelings about this because they have gay family members or whatever who are bruised by this decision. They don't know any kids specifically in it, but it's going to feel harsh and it's going to feel arbitrary. Uh, and how we approach them about saying, we'll just pray about it, you don't have a testimony or something, it, we're going to miss the mark. Yeah. Well, basically, we have always had a policy in the church that you have to have permission as a child. Yes. For both parents to be baptized. There's forever 
she lived at New York Public. We had a young man in our board. His dad was the minister of another church. He got involved with the LDS Church through the family program. All of his friends were LDS. And that young man wanted to be baptized his whole teen years, and he had to wait. And he is now on a mission for the church. And he went through his baptism alone. And um, his farewell, uh, his mother did come to the meeting that he had gone. So, you know, there's always been those situations. We just don't know about them. But the bottom line is, we are told that the latter days, it's going to get tough. These are the tough days. And we even follow the prophet. Yeah. And I don't think that we even know what's coming and what's behind this ruling that they made. No, no, we, we don't have a couple more comments than we're than we're real for. Well, maybe take issue with you said this is a policy. It's based on doctrine. It is not going to change. And and local leaders do have some discretion in They do. It is interesting that the church stated that in the first part of uh, Handbook One that says this is a policy that means some aspects of this may may change as we're rolling forward based on laws of the land. And our response is to all of that, but this is where our response is at the moment. Um, I was thinking that if you look at it from a caring thing from heaven, you follow the system, you receive an ordinance, you're, there are some expectations that come with it, and it keeps these children from being in condemnation because they're not going to Because they're not going to be able to follow through on some of the things that they're. Yeah? Okay, so you get. So, so take this. And so here, here's Nephi looking forward. Um, and and I, I just imagine his heart must have been breaking as he's what he knows that whatever efforts he's going to make with his brothers and their kids, that their that Laman Lemuel's kids are going to be uh, affected and hurt and harmed by the decisions of his brothers. And there's nothing he can do about it. And not only that, he's seen it in Technicolor in the future. And he's watching the effect it's going to have on these on these kids. That's, that, that's really tough. Um, now, this, this mist of darkness then, as this is leading them into broad roads, they're going to perish a lot. So ultimately, the, uh, he's being told by the angel that the large and spacious building which thy father saw is what? Vain imaginations and pride. Okay? Now this pride, um, oh, let me just read forward here. Okay, so, so all of this battle that we're going to see because of the, oh, 19, yes. And the angel said, I beheld and saw the seed of my brethren did contend against my seed according to the word of the angel and because of the pride of who? My seed. The Nephites. He's saying the battles are going to really be bad because of the pride of the Nephites. He's not saying the Lamanites. Well, that's kind of significant.
They talked about having children. Yeah. So we know these are his nieces and nephews. He sat around the fire night after night with these kids. Right. So again, if we're going to personalize this, just a reminder, and here comes the guilt. You ready? <laughs> our, how much are our kids and our grandkids affected by our actions? It's one of those little <sighs> added little things to say we need to take care of ourselves and take care of our business because of the effect it's going to have on those around us. Okay? Now... Let me move forward here. So now that now the vision goes forward, and it's going to begin to take this idea, and it's going to say, "Let me not. Let me take it. Just not." Now you're going to start getting this long history, and it's off of this simple little tree in the vision and the iron rod, and suddenly you're going to get this vision of, of what? Well. And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld many nations and kingdoms. Now, let me stop for a second. The Book of Mormon is amazing in the fact that it is very simple and plain forward and also very complex and incredibly accurate. Why would he use the term nations and kingdoms? Okay. Over the last two weeks, we've been visiting sites in the Greek islands that were made up of nations and kingdoms. There were a lot of kingdoms that we read, that we saw. The Ottoman Empire, for instance, in, in Istanbul, in Turkey, and all that. But specifically, there were two nations among, among the Greek islands and Europe, and that would be... The Greeks. Remember, when our founding fathers were putting together and they were sitting around trying to decide the, the uh, Constitution, where were they looking? To the Greeks. Because they, you had this group of people that considered everybody having some godhood in them. And so in Athens, for instance, they were coming together and everybody got to have a vote. Everybody got to have participation in government. So you had these city-states. And you had people, and that was all coming out of this enlightenment of Greece. So they looked to the Greeks, and that became a nation. It wasn't a kingdom, it was a nation. And the other nation would be the Roman Empire. That for most of its period of time with the Roman Senate, it was about voting, it was about making decisions. It was only in the, in the last days of it that the... Uh, Caesars became more emperors and more in, more of a one man, almost more, more like a kingdom. But for most of it, it was a nation. So here's Nephi looking down the road and he's going, Oh, I see kingdoms and I see nations. Both were there. That's kind of important. Why? He said, These are the nations and kingdoms of the Gentiles. And it came to pass that I saw among the... Nations, not the kingdoms, among the nations of the Gentiles, the formation of a great church. Not among the kingdoms, among the nations. 
Greeks, and Romans. And the angel said unto me, Behold the formation of a church that is most abominable above all other churches, which slayeth the saints of God. Listen to what they're going to do. Slayeth the saints of God, tortureth them, bindeth them down uh, with a yoke of iron, and bringeth them down into captivity. Now, further down here, we're going to find out that there are only two churches, right? There's the church of the Lamb, and there's the church of the great and abominable church. And anything that is not church of the Lamb is great and abominable church. And you will always know a great and abominable church by a certain amount of uh, characteristics. We know that uh, it, it will slayeth the saints. We know that it will torture them and bind them down, yoketh them with a yoke of iron. It will bring them into captivity. What else are we going to know about any time that we're looking at a great and abominable church. What's that? Yes, they're going to try and control. And you're also going to see, look at seven. I saw gold and silver and silks and scarlets and fine twine linen and all manner of precious clothing. And I saw many harlots. That's also going to be a marker of whenever we're looking at a great and abominable church that they're going that these are going to be some of the characteristics of. Okay? And verse 9, why do they do this? For the praise of the world. Okay? Now, let me give you an example of that. I know uh, time was, we had some of the, the brethren that wrote uh, books long ago. Um, the Grand Richards said that this was the Catholic Church. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie said it was the Catholic Church. Um, that's not true. Although, I will say this, I think there are times in the Catholic Church's history when they have slid into this role for a while. But we're going to find that a lot of churches and organizations and groups have slid into this. For some period of time. If if there's other markers, if they're persecuting the saints, did what was the Sanhedrin? Uh, the, the children of Israel fighting against the saints and persecuting them and did they have Yeah, they were. You'll watch this this title of the great and abominable kind of slide around depending on how the people are doing things. Let me give you an example of that. There they are, and and again, when we were in the uh, when we were in the uh, palace in Istanbul of of the uh, Suleiman, and you saw incredible the largest outside of the diamond in the Tower of London. The second largest diamond is there in that palace in of uh, the Suleiman. It's massive, and all kinds of gilded golden cradles and things like that. Yeah. I Kind of repeat, this stuff repeats itself, doesn't it? Let, let me give you an example of this. Now, I don't know how much of this is myth and tradition. As much as it is, this is also, we have records of this uh, within the first century A.D., which actually gives it a little bit more credibility. 
Okay, this is a photograph I took in Ephesus. Uh, this, this marker in Ephesus is right in, there, there are three of them. One of them is in the marketplace right next to the massive library that, is at, that is at, was at Ephesus. Uh, and it's right in the marketplace. There's another one on the way, on the road out to the port in Ephesus. Um, it's this little, and I don't know if you can see, it's kind of a pie-shaped kind of thing. Our early Christian fathers, the early writers in the Christian church, um, this is what they said about, about this particular mark at Ephesus. Um, because it, it's, it's pretty ancient. Uh, it would have been there when Paul was there. Uh, Paul is going to start preaching in Ephesus, and the main, one of the main features of the city of Ephesus was the massive temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Massive, massive temple. Uh, Artemis also goes by the name of Diana. Okay? And so uh, part of the trade, the big time trade in Ephesus was that they were carving these little figurines for people that were coming from all over the known world to come and go to this temple of Artemis uh, and worship there. Well, they were making little figurines to sell, so you get little souvenirs. Um, and when Paul's going to come and start preaching in there, the Christian religion was fine until they started affecting their trade. <laughs> they didn't like that a whole lot. So now you start getting a pushback against Paul and against Christians. And the, and the persecution began to get worse in Ephesus to the point that the Christians had to kind of go underground. And so what would happen is, how would one Christian know that it, it's another Christian? How do you acknowledge that each other is there? This is how they did it. Um, it, it, it there's a, a pie there, and... If you look, there are... There, you have the ability to, in this pie-shaped thing, to go through the first letters in Greek... Meaning Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son, Savior, I, X, Y, Omega, uh, Epsilon? No, Sigma. Sigma. And each one of those, if you picture, can be drawn on this pi thing. Okay? The I, the X, the Y, the O, the Sigma... So there was, the, there was the figure, and it was there. And somebody could be standing, as many were, standing right at that spot at the time of Paul. And you could be standing, looking at this in the marketplace. Picture this in the middle of a mall. And what would happen is one man, as he's standing there, and he sees somebody else, and they're both looking at, how do we both know we're Christian? The one would reach out with his foot, and he would trace kind of this half circle across the top of that thing and stop. And the other man on the other side with, with his foot would trace the opposite side of that and it forms the fish. That's how they acknowledged to each other in this setting that they were Christian. Then we can connect and we can find a place to meet or something like that. Yeah, now it's on bumper stickers everywhere. You, you, you see that. If you ever wondered where the Christian fish 
came from, and you wonder, what, what's the fish about? This is where it comes from. It comes from Ephesus. There's another one like this uh, that is on the road leading from the theater out to the port where, where the traffic would come through, where somebody coming off the boat could come walking up there and they would look down and they would see that on there. They could stand there and somebody else could see there. And all they'd have to do is trace with their foot half of it. And the other one, another person would trace the other half. And now we connected. We're both Christian. But it's kind of an underground connection kind of thing. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Yeah. By the way, the side note, trivia-wise, in Ephesus, the, the ground underneath this is air-conditioned and heated. There were pipes that ran underneath there, and they would run hot water. And a marble thing, when it could be 100 degrees and these could be blazing hot, they were running cold water down underneath the stones to keep it cool so you could walk around in the marketplace. Very cool. But you're going to get this sense of... LDS? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that would be a lot more clever. Okay. Now you're gonna you're gonna get this sense uh, that they're gonna for the praise of the world today destroy the saints of God. One of the things that's always been a problem through the history is the fact that saints who believe were always going to come under some kind of persecution. And we think, well, gosh, we're being, you know, the press is saying bad things about the church this week. Um, let me, let me uh, suggest this. Joseph Smith. Um, Joseph Smith once came across John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody ever read Book of Martyrs, John Fox's? Very, very interesting, isn't it? Very enlightening about the things that would happen to the ancient Christians. Uh, and, and personally witnessed the persecutions and martyrdoms of many early reformers. Uh, Edward Stevenson later described the prophet's reaction to the book. He expressed sympathy for the Christian martyrs and a hope for their salvation. He asked to borrow the book, promising to return it when he should meet us again in Missouri. On returning in it, he said, I have by the aid of the Yerman Thumb seen those martyrs. They were honest, devoted followers of Christ according to the life that they possessed. They will be saved. Now, some of these martyrs included... By the way, again, if you haven't read Fire in the Bones, you absolutely have to. That's required reading. Michael Wilcox. <coughs> For what crimes were these early saints destroyed in England? And think about, again, among the nations of the earth. This is when, again, the great and abominable church shows up because it fits all of the parameters we were just talking about. For what crimes were these early saints destroyed? In England, the principal cause was for teaching their children and family the Lord's Prayer and Ten Commandments in English. Parents were taught these things to their children were burned. Their children were warned to forget the offending words placed in their memory by loving parents and to remember only the faith they had suffered. A standard question of the Inquisition 
The great and abominable shows up there. Have you read or do you own the Scriptures in the common tongue? You see the sins of the fathers? Effect on the kids? Only this time the sins of the fathers were they had the Ten Commandments in English. If you were found with the Ten Commandments in English or the Sermon on the Mount in English, they would immediately take you and burn you at the stake. Yeah, one of the reasons the pilgrims left. Sure. William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English prior to King James' commission, was hung and then burned in 1536. His generation of English reformers was similarly executed. On the continent, thousands were executed and persecuted by various elements of the Inquisition. Remember, part of the problem with the Inquisition is having the scriptures in English. It was supposed to be in Latin. Uh, two things. One is that uh, the, the scriptures in Latin was supposed to be so lofty kind of thing that if you're going to take the if you're going to take the uh, uh, Bible and you're going to put it into the common tongue, you made it more common. You made it. You, yeah, you, you you lowered it. But here's the other thing, though. The other, here's the other battle, and it was much more subtle. As Tyndale was talking about repentance, he was actually translating from the uh, Septuagint, uh, rolling forward and talking about the words of the Savior. Charity meant penance. If I'm going to repent, I have to pay penance to the church. And he said penance could come directly, and repentance could come directly to, to God and bypass the church. Well, that's now, now like the guys carving Diana statues in Ephesus. You're taking away their living. I think also they only wanted the, the members to understand the gospel through the eyes of the priest. That's right. And so there, that's, there was a controlling kind of thing that would come through there. Exactly right. right. In the mid-1500s in England, Queen Mary became known as Bloody Mary by executing those in support of an Anglican church. It is a broad fact that during the last four years of Queen Mary's reign, no less than 288 persons were burned at the stake for their adhesion to the Protestant faith. Anytime a church, a very rich organization, is going to try and suppress that, that's going, it crosses over into Great and Abominable. And you kept and you're watching it flow around organizations all the time. So you get this the sense of these these martyrs. And Nephi's watching all of this. Is she recalled the whole church and great ones, probably great abominable leader. Yes. Absolutely. And but again, you're gonna then what as everybody believes what that leader is believing, now you're gonna get the sins of the fathers affecting the children. Again, the actions of the adults always trickles down. It always trickles down. Okay. So here, here is... Uh, oh, 
Let me go back one more. I just want to make one more. Look at these phrases again. Uh, the great and abominable church. You want to know who the... We mentioned it last time, but let me mention again. Who's the angel that's showing Nephi all of this? Well, here's, here, here's my belief. That's simply my belief. Uh, which uh, slayeth the saints of God, tortureth them, bringeth them down, bottom the yoke of uh, iron. Seven, I saw gold and silver and silks and scarlets and fine twine linen. And also for the praise of the world, do they destroy the saints of God? Listen to the language that's being used. Now, let me jump ahead, and I've got it uh, cross-referenced here to Revelation 17, to another vision. Here's John speaking. Who uh, carried me away in the spirit. I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-covered beast. Uh, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, and having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness. Uh, on her forehead was written, Mystery Babylon. Uh, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered with admiration. This is the Apostle Paul. We're going to get to the end of Nephi's vision, and then he's going to say, I was about to write the rest of this, but I couldn't because why? John's response. Because it's going to be John's responsibility to continue this vision. So, Kevin, when you just said the Apostle Paul, did you mean John? Yes, I said Apostle Paul, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> we knew who you meant. Okay. I'm glad you guys are with me. You know what I. Apostle John. Is, it, is John the Revelator? But he didn't come until after. He's 600 some odd years later. But isn't it interesting that he may, even then, apparently he's the one that had the keys and the responsibility for this vision. Because now he's going to start quoting the exact same thing, and you've got this angel walking Nephi through. It's my belief that this was John. And that he had a responsibility foreordained in the preexistence for this great apocalyptic vision. And he's even using the same words that he will then use 600 years later. I might be way wrong. But it just makes sense to me that always we get these people that have these keys and they're going to hold on to these keys and it looks like some of these keys may happen pre-mortally. Is that too heavy? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So anyway, he's going to see those. So, in the time we've got remaining, let's, let's go over to 1 Nephi 14. Now, now he's, he's going all the way down to our present day. He's going to talk to us. And this, this vision of Nephi is going out to us. And here's where it applies to us. That if the Gentiles hearken unto the Lamb of God, in that day he shall manifest himself unto them in word and also in power and in very deed taking away their stumbling blocks. Um, want to make sure. Okay. Because he's actually going to get very specific about when the great and abominable is really doing 
most of this stuff. He's going to talk about, uh, and that great pit, which has been digged for them by the great abominable church, which was founded by the devil, that he might lead away the souls down to hell. What is that pit? Can we see, this is an image that gets used a lot in the scriptures. Wicked people always dig pits. They're designed to put somebody else, to put somebody in there, but they end up in this pit themselves. What is the pit? Rock bottom. It could be kind of <laughs> rock bottom. Yeah, that's kind of what I did. When I started looking at this, I go, what's the pit? Because I keep hearing this. Even Joseph Smith, the night before he dies, has a vision of a pit. And he's thrown in it, and the, and the ones that were going to ultimately kill him at Carthage end up in the pit instead of him. It's a trap. Okay? What happens in that trap? It's kind of a hell. Let me take a step back. With, and, and if we look at the Old Testament, do we have a very famous pit that somebody was thrown into? Joseph. Joseph. As he's about to be sold into Egypt and hauled off. And while he's, and while he's sitting in the pit, what are the brothers doing? Deciding. Trying to decide what we're going to do. They're kind of judging, do we kill him? Do we sell him? Do we just leave him here for wild beasts? What do we do? So what happens a lot of times with somebody thrown into a pit, it's a place where we are going to be judged. Does that make sense? The pit is where people get judged. Uh, I'm bouncing all over the place here. Paul was judged right there. That is the... I can't remember the name of it. Bema. Yeah, the Bema. In Corinth. Uh, Paul stood right there and was judged by the people of Corinth. Okay? There, there's, another, there's another pit. What do we do with him? Well, we're, in this case, we're going to throw him into a pit where he will be destroyed. Corinth's um, God will protect him. Yes. And so, uh, I love that uh, in, the, uh, in our scriptures, uh, we've, we've actually tied into Matthew 7 on this, which says, For with judgment ye judge, ye shall also be judged. So what happens to those that, that are judging? They will also be judged by the same way that they're judging. Okay? So there's the pit. The pit is a place of judgment. Do we, are we feeling a little judged at the moment? Because we're, we're doing harsh, mean, horrible things to kids. As a church. We're being judged. Okay? Now, verse 7, For the time cometh, saith the Lamb of God, I will work a great and marvelous work among the children, a work that's going to be everlasting. Uh, on the one side, and listen to what this work does. And I think, and, and I can't emphasize this enough. There is a work that's going to come, and it will divide people. It will divide people. The Savior says it, it, His word is a double-edged sword. It it cuts. It divides. And He's going to say this great and marvelous work. It will be everlasting. On one hand or on the other. Either the convincing them of peace and life eternal or 
the deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds. When the gospel of Christ is preached, it divides. You will either embrace it and accept it, or you will reject it and fight against it. Yeah. And isn't that true that just whatever the church would have said, yes. Yeah. Once they're filled by the mist of darkness and their eyes have been blinded and their hearts have been hardened, I, I'm always amazed with it and I see these threads online and people will be arguing about something about the church and I've been caught in one of those and I mentioned something and some guy was coming back at me and I said, is there anything I could say that would convince you to abandon everything you believe and accept that Joseph Smith was a prophet? Well, no. I, okay, then why am I even wasting my breath here? Because I've been so blinded and darkened to believe a certain way, the gospel will... And so we say it's supposed to be a uniting kind of thing. It's the broad road. Brothers and sisters, there's a great sense in which when the church begins to say this is right and this is wrong, it will divide. There will be people that will darken and harden and there's not a thing we can say to change that. It just won't. You, I don't know if it was when you were gone, but uh, a couple of weeks ago there was a vote in Houston. Yeah. Um, you can go in either restroom. It depends on your preference, whether you're a man or a Yeah, I can hang out wherever I want. But the surprising part of that to me was the mayor, she was touting this greatly and, and got defeated by two to one, but she felt so badly. She says, all the rest of the nation is not going to see us as a progressive city. Here's the fourth largest city in the United States. You, you wonder why that's even on the back. See, progressive means tolerant. Broader. And, and tolerant means whatever you're going to do. So when when a commandment comes down that says this is right and this is wrong, it will divide. Well, we're not supposed to be dividers. We're supposed to be uniters. Yes, but they're not tolerant about our. No, they're, they're, the pit that they're digging about the judgment is also a judgment on their part. And I think it's the people who are dividing themselves. Yes. Yes. I will never darken that church again as long as they are so mean spirited. And they're going to, that's right. Exactly. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> because we don't want to hurt our parents' feelings. Yeah, I know. Uh, and there's not, a, and I hate when they do that, but you know what? We're going to see more of this. The more that the church draws a firmer line in the sand and says this is right and this is wrong, there are going to be people that divide themselves more because that's, that's what it does. At the end of the day, there's only two churches. We're so, we're so immersed in this culture of everything else. And, and that it's supposed to be loving and it's supposed to be accepting and it's supposed to be. And anything that says you're doing something wrong is mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everyone should have equal rights, but sometimes giving everyone equal rights takes away or punishes, I mean, to have restrooms 
open up like that could really open cans of worms for people who would abuse. Oh, sure. And it will. And it will. Uh, okay, now, he's going to give you a time frame. And it came to pass that I beheld the great mother of abominations. We could spend a whole class on why he chose, why the, the symbol here is a mother. And I thought about going down that road, but there's a lot there, and I decided not to. I'll let you do that research on your own. Though I did find it interesting that in every stop we made over the last two weeks, on every Greek island and Sicily and Italy and everywhere we went, they always had a, a, uh, a deity that they worshipped in that city and she was always female. Always. Including the Vatican. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> yes. Comes from her. Yeah. But she is the mother of abominations. Uh, and they're going to fight against the Lamb of God. And it came to pass that he held the power of the Lamb. It descended on the saints. That's nice to know. There's a power that is being given to those that are uh, members of the church. Upon the covenant people who were scattered upon the face of the earth. And they're armed with two things, it says. They're armed with righteousness and they're armed with power to withhold all of the battles that are coming against us. Okay? And I saw that the wrath of God was poured out, verse 15, poured out on the great and abominable church, insomuch that there are wars of rumors of wars, and, there's, and there began to be wars and rumors of war among all the nations which belong to the mother of abominations. Uh, uh, and, and then look at 17. You want to know kind of where we are, right? At, look, look, look at the date here. 17. And when the day cometh that the wrath of God is poured out among the mother of harlots, which is the great and abominable church, which founders the devil, then at that day will the work of the Lord commence. What date's that? 1830. Think about the continuous wars that have taken place, especially among the nations. Remember, we're talking about kingdoms and nations. Think about the continual wars that have happened among the nations of Europe, especially, since 1830. And the battling goes... Again, whenever we would go into another port, we look at the first thing that a city would have to do, or a nation would have to do, you've got to build a wall. Why are you going to have to build a wall? Because we're going to get attacked. Those dang Turks keep showing up. Or the Greeks are going to attack us. Or the Roman Empire is going to come rolling through. We've got to protect ourselves and we need a really big wall to keep ourselves safe because there's war out here and this is a vicious war like people that are going to attack us. Okay? And the day cometh when the wrath of God is poured out. Okay, so. Um, I think I was going to kind of wrap up about that. Okay. So, what's our challenge these days? In the midst of all the changes, in the midst of the world, how do we find how do we find peace, or how do we avoid the pit? I think one of the challenges for us is to make sure that we don't slide into the great gospel church. How could we do that? 
judge the more we become pit like yeah well the scriptures talked a lot about harlots and i don't think it was intending to be just to women and i don't think it intended to be just about sex either <laughs> why why harlots because it's selling, that's part of that discussion it's selling yourself and anyone can do that yeah i'm gonna sell myself completely to the highest bidder yeah Yeah. You know, I, I'll, I'll have to admit, when I first heard the, the change, I, I cringed a little bit at first because I was thinking about the kids. Uh, again, we're doing everything in this church possible to find kids, bring them in, get them blessed, get them baptized. I've got a grandson that's about to be baptized in a couple of weeks and how excited he is. And my heart goes out to those kids that are going to be affected by the sins of the fathers. And, and, I, and that just kills me. But I don't see any other way ar around this. And it's just, and that's hard. I was just thinking, you know, we were talking about judging, and it's not for us to judge. It's no, it's not for us to judge, is it? That, that's when we become pit-like, is when we're judging. There and then here, and then we'll finish. Uh, this is topic right at the very end of the meeting, but I don't think the first time that churches can hear this. Oh, no. No. Yep. This is tough. And I believe there's probably tougher ones coming. It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. I think it's our responsibility to judge righteously, but not to condemn others right. for their choices. Yeah, the judgment actually listed there, the Greek word for that is actually condemnation to death. Right. It's an ultimate condemnation. We have to judge who we spend time with. Right. But this kind of is a condemnation. And when we condemn, we become pit-like. Right. Interesting times we live in. This is where the rubber's hitting the road. And I think this is the time when, as, as Latter-day Saints, we, we, we have to have our own testimonies of this. And I think we're going to be shaken a bit. 
And I think this is, this is that time. And Nephi is looking through the lens of history to see all of this. That's why I think the Book of Mormon for us should just live. It should just jump off there that says, this is very real stuff. And if we just think this was past stuff and it doesn't apply now, we're missing the power of the Book of Mormon. Um, so, my, I, I guess I charge you now to go forward and, uh, and, and, and stand strongly on your testimonies and on your spirit to be able to know how you begin to approach others who are going to struggle with these issues. Because they need your calming influence and your loving approach, but also an understanding is that this is going to divide some people, and the doctrine of Christ does that from time to time. And this is going to be tough. I pray we can do it, though. We're, and uh, that's our charge. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.